A warm welcome to the first in a series of equine veterinary education podcasts. In this podcast, we'll be taking a look at what the future may hold for equine therapeutics and diagnostics. I'll be speaking with Dr. Andrea Bischofberger from the University of Zurich on the role of Manuka honey in equine wound healing, followed by discussions with Dr. Tyler Bafal from the Royal Veterinary College on the application of portable inertial measurement units in equine lameness workups. So firstly, the role of Manuka honey in second intention wound healing. Hello, Dr. Bischofberger. Hello, Claire. Hello. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into research in the use of Manuka honey? Well, I guess it was due to my supervisor at the time, Professor Andrew Dart, who had done quite a bit of research previously in the wound healing field. And then the fact that uh, Manuka honey in Australia is something that is used quite frequently for wounds, so we decided to, to investigate that um, in horses. Okay, so it's something that you, you were commonly using in the clinic? Yes. And how is honey thought to act on wounds? Well, it has two main effects on wound healing that we know of. Uh, one's the antibacterial effect, and one is a modulating effect on the initial inflammatory response of wound healing. So the antibacterial effect is mediated by the general properties of honey, so it's sugar contact, it's low pH, which have an antibacterial effect. And then when honey is diluted, um, hydrogen peroxide is generated and contributes to the antibacterial activity. And then on top, uh, in honey derived from plants of the leptospermum species, you have an additional substance called methylglyoxal, which has a direct effect on the bacterial um, DNA. So this is what is specifically special about Manuka honey? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And you mentioned about the immunomodulatory effect. Is that particularly useful for equine wound healing? Yes, I do think so. And I think there is might be more important in equine wound healing and than the actual antibacterial effect. They have found that Manuka honey enhances the production of cytokines that regulate the fibroblast production in the angiogenesis honey has been found to activate toll-like receptor 4 and monocytes and that activation of that receptor then enhances IL-1, IL-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha production from the monocytes which then um, enhance the inflammatory reaction which we know in horses especially in distal limb wounds is low and chronic. Does it show any effect on say the production of proud flesh? which are particularly interested in with lower limb wounds in horses? That's a difficult question. I think proud flesh is also associated with the lack of the good inflammatory response in the distal limb wound healing. So if Manuka honey modulates this inflammatory response, it could also decrease the amount of proud flesh. However, in our studies, we did not investigate this specific question. Okay. So... Are you able to tell me a little bit briefly about the studies that you've conducted using Manuka honey? Yeah, so we started off with a preliminary study. In that study, we tested the effect of UMF-20 Manuka honey on second intention healing compared to a control wound. So we created a small wound on the metacarpus of both front limbs of six horses, contaminated the wounds. We treated one with honey and a bandage and the other one just with a bandage and then we measured wound healing area and total time to healing. 
And what we found was that the honey-treated wounds showed less wound retraction in the initial phase of wound healing and that they remained smaller post-wounding. In that study, the overall healing time when treatment was administered for only for 12 days was not significantly different between the wounds. When honey assumes a liquid form at room temperature, um, it's hard to keep it in contact with the wound. So to address the liquid consistency, we developed a, a mixture consisting of 66% Manuka honey and a 34% pH neutral gel that could be applied in the long run without the need of the bandage. Okay. Uh, we could find that the 66% Manuka honey gel was equally efficient as pure honey and that there was benefits in treating the wounds throughout the whole healing process. After that, we wanted to test the effect of the honey gel on concentrations of transforming growth factors, beta-1 and beta-3. Those two growth factors are very important in wound healing and have been found to play a key role also in the development of proud flesh, for example. We also wanted to test whether the honey gel was effective on bacterial counts and the effect of the honey um, on wound healing by means of histology. So we did another experiment taking biopsies from the wounds for histology and for the transforming beta analyses and taking wound swabs for the bacterial analysis at different time points. We found that the honey gel had no effect on the TGF beta 1 and TGF beta 3 levels. We found that honey gel decreased the inflammation, that we had an increased angiogenesis, an increased fibrosis and collagen organization, and an increased um, epithelial hyperplasia. So we proposed that the daily treatment with Manuka honey may lead to a more mature organized granulation tissue in wound repair and reducing the wound retraction, which was one of the main effects seen in the horses treated with the Manuka honey throughout all three of the studies. So very interesting findings there. If you're interested, they're published in Veterinary Surgery and the Australian Veterinary Surgery Journal. And how would you advise vets in practice to use Manuka honey when they're dealing with wounds in general practice? Are there any particular wounds that are better candidates for this treatment? I think the best candidates are wounds that are contaminated and traumatised and obviously wounds that we can't close by primary intention. Treatment is for sure most effective when it's commenced soon after wounding, so preferably within the first 24 hours. I think the wounds should still be routinely surgically debrided and necrotic tissue and debris should be removed to optimize healing. And as I said before, when there is substantial contamination, um, use a honey of a UMF factor of at least 15. I think a bandage may enhance the honey and wound contact on the distal limbs in the early wound healing process. Um, We can change the bandage daily and reapply the honey And we know that ongoing bandaging is associated with the production of proud flesh. So after 12 days, preferably leave the wound open if possible and just continue to apply a thin film of Manuka honey daily for at least about 21 days after wounding. So are there any downsides with using Manuka honey with wounds? Is it particularly messy to deal with? Are there any kind of practical considerations that you need to think about? Yeah, I guess if it's warm, then the honey will um, be liquid, so it's probably easier to be used with a bandage. 
Mm. Some horses, if they don't have bandages, they may lick off the honey of the wounds. Okay. And flies, for sure, in summer, depending on the country you're in, um, can be a problem. I can't give specific contraindications for using it in horses. I can only say that the effect of honey on exposed bones or tendons or using it in wounds obviously communicating with joints hasn't been evaluated. Okay. From my clinical experience, I have not seen side effects when using it on wounds where bone was exposed or a tendon surface was exposed. However, I tend not to use it in wounds obviously communicating with joints until the communication is closed. Yeah. What can we gain from looking at literature from our medical counterparts? Can we draw on those studies to look at the use of honey in wound management in veterinary species, do you think? Well, I think they probably started off using honey a lot earlier than we did, and so I guess some of the, the um, application protocol that we started using we got from the human literature, and also there's a lot of in vitro studies showing the spectrum of how the Manuka honey works on different hospital isolates and different bacteria, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think we've seen a lot of information from that. So with the growing concern of antimicrobial resistance, do you think Manuka honey has a, a part to play? I think to some degree, yes. I mean, we know that the honey of the Leptospermum and plant species like the Manukaniers has been shown to be highly effective against multi-resistant hospital isolates such as Pseudomonas, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus in comparison to the commonly used antibiotics. Also bacterial biofilms for example have been associated with delayed healing and chronic wound infection in horses and in humans. Kani has been shown to prevent biofilm formation and disrupt established biofilms. So, yeah, encouragingly, I think at this time point, there are no clinical reports of acquired antimicrobial resistance to honey. That is probably due to the multiple synergistic activities that give honey its antimicrobial activities. Um, there is a recent in vitro study that has found that suboptimal concentrations of Manuka honey can allow resistant bacterial wound pathogens to emerge. So I think it's always very important to keep the concentration of the Manuka honey very high in mm. the actual wound area for this not to happen. Okay. UMF 20 was the concentration that you were using, was it? Yes. So we used um, UMF 20. I think it very much depends on the degree of contamination of your wound. Obviously, the higher the UMF factor, the higher the, the cost of the honey. So if I have a wound that is not very strongly contaminated, I can probably get away with a lower UMS factor. Otherwise, if you have a contaminated wound, I think if you have a factor greater than 15, um, you should be okay. Okay. What formulations of Manuka honey are already commercially available for veterinary species? I think it very much depends on the country um, you are in. There sure. is a okay. A medical um, Manuka honey available which is also sterilized by means of gamma irradiation which can be used that is for example available in Switzerland and was also available in Australia I don't know um, how that is um, in terms of the UK or the US. Thank you very much for talking with us today Dr Bischoff Berger it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Next up, I'll be speaking with Dr. Pafal from the Royal Veterinary College about quantitative assessment of gait parameters in horses. Dr. Pafal, welcome. First of all, could you give me a little bit of an introduction into your background in equine gait analysis? So I've been working uh, for the last more than 10 years now in the area of lameness exams, despite not actually being a vet, but having come from a more computer science background and then going into animal biomechanics, uh, I soon uh, realized that uh, we could probably do something about measuring things in horses during lameness exams. And this is really uh, how I came to it. I mean, I just, just came to the RVC, worked in the Structure and Motion Lab here on various other locomotive biomechanics projects, and then uh, realized that there's a, there's a gap there that uh, we can do something about uh, measuring lameness rather than just looking at it. Okay, so you mentioned there's a gap there in terms of the level of detection possible by the human eye. Could you tell us a bit more about this? There's really two things. One thing is, as you say, is that we have uh, done some studies where we've uh, looked into how good the human eye actually is at seeing asymmetries. And asymmetries is really what we're talking about when we're talking about lameness. We have measured that uh, it needs around 20% asymmetry in movement before vets, and not only vets, before people can really see um, asymmetries. And so we have sensors and we have cameras of course uh, that uh, that can measure these asymmetries at a higher accuracy and a higher precision the second thing is we of course had these camera based systems um, that we have we and others had been using for like decades in the in the gate laboratories but these are rather cumbersome uh, things to do because you have a lot of cameras, you have a lot of expensive equipment standing around and then you have to put a lot of markers on your horse and then you can measure this with very high accuracy. But this is not very practical. So if, if you're going to do a lameness exam and you're looking at the horse under different conditions, you're looking at the horse on the, on the straight and also on, on the circle and also in ridden exercise, then your camera-based systems are, are very quickly at their limit because you would need like hundreds of cameras to, to capture all these areas. And um, not even we have that much money that we can afford uh, them. Um, so uh, we needed something that is a little bit more flexible and uh, that is a little bit cheaper so that uh, we can instrument horses without any need for big and bulky equipment standing around. So that sounds like a practical solution to these problems. Can you tell us about the benefits of using technology to assist with lameness examinations? The biggest benefit as I see it, and I think from the work that we have been doing with Andy Fistraction and also Marie Rodin in Uppsala, is that we see a big benefit in actually looking at complex lameness cases. Um, so lamenesses that are mild, we here at the RVC and also in Uppsala, that's, that's more a referral level caseload, I guess. Um, and so we often see very tricky uh, lameness cases and very mild lameness cases. And this is where really the strength of the IMU-based system, so the inertial sensor-based system comes in, because we can follow the whole lameness exam. It's not, it's not a golden bullet in a way. It's not like you put the system on, um, you trot the horse up and it will give you the answer. This is absolutely not what it does. What it does is you can gather information, you can gather quantitative information about all the things that you are doing during a lameness exam. 
Excellent. So these wireless inertial measurement units, what are they and how do they work? An inertial measurement unit, or IMU in the uh, technical jargon, I guess, is, is really a, a self-contained small miniature device that has accelerometers in there, that has gyroscopes in there and magnetometers. So this is basically what you will find in your smartphone and the sort of sensors that you find there that, for example, tell you whether your phone is in, in landscape or in portrait mode. And it is also used for a lot of uh, games where you, you move your phone around and these sensors detect how you're moving. The sensors that we are using are a little bit higher accuracy um, than uh, what you find in a, in a standard uh, smartphone, but it's used a lot now in human gait analysis, uh, so in human hospitals. What they do is they measure acceleration, they measure how fast that sensor is turning, and they measure its orientation, basically. This is what they're designed to do. What we are doing with them is we are making use of that information, which is the orientation of that sensor, and also the acceleration of that sensor. And in particular, we're looking at vertical movement. So we're looking at how much that sensor is moving up and down. And uh, this is very handy for lameness exams because uh, we can calculate how much the head is moving up and down. We can uh, calculate how much the pelvis is moving up and down. And so we can relate this to two of the most commonly used lameness parameters, which would be the head knot for forelimb lameness and the hip hike or pelvic hike for hindlimb lameness. And this is really uh, where the IMUs come in, where we can measure vertical movement of head and pelvis um, with good accuracy and precision. Okay, you mentioned that other equipment has been cumbersome to use and expensive. So what is it about the IMUs that make them more practical? Okay, so uh, it's really that these things are small. They are wireless devices, so you just need a laptop computer or a tablet computer that is sitting somewhere in the vicinity of the horse, and then you just attach your sensors to the horse. And this depends a little bit on which particular system you're using. We have a system where we put uh, a sensor on the top of the head, so on the pole, and we have three sensors that go over the pelvic area, one in the midline and one, one on each hip. And this is really, it really just takes a couple of minutes. It's not really a free lunch. You need additional time to do this, but then you have the benefit that you get data out of this that helps you to interpret your data a little bit more objectively, a little bit more quantitatively. Mm -hmm. So once you have the sensors on the horse, you just go to your computer, you start the data collection, and then you do whatever you do in your lameness exam, and you just record the movements of the horse um, that the horse is doing under these specific conditions. So usually you start on a straight line. So you put your sensors on the horse, you trot the horse up a couple of times, you wait until you have enough strides. Research has shown that we need about 25, 30 strides until we have a good idea about uh, what that horse is doing on average. Um, and so once we have those 25, 30 strides, we can stop the data collection and by the press of a button a few seconds later, you then have your results. So you then get an illustration and also some numbers uh, that tell you how asymmetrical that the gait of that particular horse is. So the results are delivered rapidly and easy to assess on a laptop or tablet? Yeah, absolutely. So depending on which, which system you're using, you either need to enter the information about what that horse is doing now. So is this a straight line? Is this a lunge? Is this a flexion test or whatever it is? You either need to enter this beforehand 
And then you basically instantaneously have your results once you have enough data. Or the other option is you just record data and then afterwards you select what, what data you want and then you enter, ah, this was the horse on the straight line, this was the horse on the on the lunch. And really then uh, it takes maybe 25, 30 seconds or something like that before you then have uh, your data analyzed and then you get a, a readout on your computer screen um, that then tells you everything within seconds of what the horse has been, has, has been doing. So what are the existing difficulties in the usual lameness examination? Okay, so from my experience with uh, in the realm of uh, lameness exams, it is really, again, we're coming back to those mild and complex lameness cases where you need to perform a number of uh, exercises. You, you need to see the horse in a number of conditions. So not only on the straight, but you also see that on the lunge, on different surfaces, you may want to see the horse ridden. You then move on to diagnostic analgesia. And this is really where you then have to put together a, a pretty complex puzzle at the end of the day and really see which of these conditions are the ones where the horse performed best or worst and which are the, the conditions where I intervened, for example, with a, with a, a diagnostic analgesia and where the horse reacted most. And since we are in these mild lameness cases, we are working at the level of human perception, at the boundary of human perception. It is then becomes sometimes very tricky and you have to have a look at those horses very carefully and over and over again. Whereas if you have a system that measures these things while you're going along, you can then sit down and actually find out, yes, when I did this specific nerve block, this specific joint block, that had a bigger effect in particular on the soft surface or on the hard surface. And then it just helps you and gives you a little bit more quantitative information to piece together the whole puzzle and then find out which is actually the limb that is most affected here and together with your diagnostic analgesia, um, which is the region of the limb that seems to be most affected. And then you can go further on to your diagnostics with diagnostic imaging. It sounds like this technology comes into its own and is most useful for perhaps lamenesses of around one to two tenths lame and maybe chronic lamenesses. Is this correct? Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a, a common misconception that IMUs actually are not good at measuring bilateral lameness because they're measuring asymmetry. But this is, as I said, this is a misconception because you're not expecting the IMU system to be the magic bullet and to give you that answer, but you're using it as conjunction with your lameness exam and it just gives you additional information. So uh, it is really, yes, ex absolutely. It is most useful I would say for those complex, uh, for those complex gates, for those complex lamenesses, where you have to, do, where the horse has to perform on a number of different exercises, and it just gives you quantitative information um, to piece this into your puzzle. What about the practicalities when using these to measure gait parameters in the horse? Do horses readily accept wearing these? Yeah, again, that, that depends on which particular system you use. But in general, you have you have a sensor on the head, which is uh, attached usually to the headpiece. We attach that with a bit of Velcro to the headpiece. And the other sensors that are then mounted over the body of the horse, uh, so over the pelvic area in particular, we use uh, double-sided tape uh, to attach that to the horse. That works fairly fairly well in most horses. So you've obviously got a lot of experience with the use of these inertial measurement units. How would you like the use of these to develop in the future? 
I know there's more and more studies coming out showing that people are using these systems in clinical practice and probably more from the university or referral level hospitals and mostly in the US at the moment. But there's more and more coming into into use also in Europe. And I think this this is really, I mean, yeah, people are using it. So, so it's, it's already there. We are already starting to see use of these systems. Are there any other technologies that you can see on the horizon that could be useful with assisting with lameness examinations? <laughs> well, you're speaking to somebody who has spent the last 10 years of his life to uh, to try and uh, convince people to use IMUs. So uh, um, this is a little bit of a, of a tricky question. Okay. And, uh, we, we see things like uh, in, in smartphones and we can see we have already done some tests where we can actually, instead of having expensive equipment, you can uh, expensive specialist equipment. We could also use uh, phones, so you don't really need to buy an expensive kit. Uh, you just put your iPhone on the horse and and you measure this. We are not quite there yet in terms of how accurate these things and and how practically useful they are. But this is this is something that will certainly happen because uh, I think the I mean the, the sensors as such are getting smaller and are getting better and uh, increasing in uh, increasing their performance. So this is something that we will see and potentially we will also see something that the current generations of sensors struggle with is uh, limb movement. I think with, with, with coming uh, sensor generations, we might see also use of these uh, sensors on the legs of horses. And then uh, there's a bit of a revival really um, of, of camera-based systems where at the moment where people are trying to collect more information, again, uh, concentrating not only on the other body, which we are measuring with the sensors, but also um, measuring limb movements in, in horses. That's the two things that I currently see that people seem to be thinking about. So there's a lot of scope for development and potential to perhaps revolutionise the way we look at lameness examinations in horses. So it's exciting times. Dr. Pafal, thank you very much for being interviewed for EVE podcast. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Look out for the next edition of Equine Veterinary Education podcasts on the EVE webpage. I'm Claire Scantlebury. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>